Our text this morning is Psalm 38. Hear now God's holy word. O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to apply it to our hearts today. Fill us with your spirit that we might receive it and understand it and obey it and do all that you've told us to do. We have no greater desire than to be pleasing to you in all things. So fill me with your spirit as well as I attempt to deliver these things and articulate them. Loosen my tongue, deliver me from all error, and lead us all into truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, this Sunday is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. It's the beginning of a new year on the church calendar. Today we exit the long stretch of ordinary time of the church year and we enter that section of the calendar that is full of special feasts and observances that will take us all the way up through Easter and Pentecost in the spring. And following this calendar is one way that we celebrate and rejoice in and give thanks together for the most important events in human history. The events in the life of Jesus are the most important events in, the, in human history and, and need to be celebrated. On the fourth day of creation, God put sun, moon, and stars in the heavens, and he put them there for signs and for seasons. That word seasons, as I've said many times, is the word for festal seasons. It's the word for worship seasons, special times of worship. So not only do the sun, moon, and stars mark day and night and govern the day and night and seed time and harvest, but more importantly, they tell us when it's time to worship their creator, when it's time to worship the creator of the heavens. You count, you count seven sunrises and it's time to worship again. You count the months and you count the weeks and you count, you count the, the days and the years and you worship through the days and the seasons and the years of your life. Psalm 90 says... Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And in order to number their days and gain a heart of wisdom, God gave Israel a calendar of feasts and celebrations. He gave them Pentecost and Passover. It's Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, to put it in the right order. And they even added a few of their own. They added Purim and Hanukkah, because that's what you do when God delivers you. That's what you do when, when God does something amazing in history. You mark the occasion and you celebrate. You cook lots of food and you give gifts and you decorate. And so the church in her wisdom from very early on agreed on a festival calendar based on the life of Jesus, based on the mighty acts of God in history to help us to number our days 
according to wisdom. And so we have the big feast of Christmas, we have the big feast of Easter, and we have various other seasons and days in between. Now, today, we begin Advent. We're in the season of Advent, which is the season where we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus, when he will put all enemies under his feet, and all saints alive at his coming will be transformed, and all the dead in Christ will be given new bodies fit for eternity. So then the hymns and the prayers and the scripture readings for this season focus on anticipation and waiting on the day of the Lord when he will come as judge of all the earth and he will sort out everything fully and finally. The word advent means simply drawing near or, or arrival. And so we contemplate all the ways that the Lord draws near to us, he, the way he comes to us each Lord's day. Every Lord's day, he comes to speak to us, to feed us, to sort us out. He also comes in judgment and blessing when we call on his name together. We ask him to come sort out our world, come fix things. Well, that's an advent. That's a drawing near. And he comes and he shakes things up. So what do you do when you have prayed for the Lord to come? What do you do when you're preparing for his advent, for his drawing near? Well, the prophets had a lot to say about this. The prophets warn of his coming. They warn of the day of the Lord. And the call to action is... Prepare yourselves, prepare yourselves for the day of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, exalt the valleys, level the hills, make the crooked places straight and make the rough places smooth. Make ready, the Lord is coming, the King is coming. And so you and I today are in this season of anticipation and preparation for all the ways our Lord is coming to us, both as he comes to be our judge at the end of the age as he comes to us each Lord's Day, as he comes when we pray for him to shake up and move the world, and now at, at, as we prepare for the festival and the feast and the celebration of his first coming at Christmas. This is also the time of preparation for his first coming. And so as we're preparing for Christmas in a few weeks, and as we go through the season of Advent, these themes all run in the same direction. Because just as he fulfilled his promises to come at the incarnation, so will he surely fulfill his promise to come and be judge of all the earth. It's just as certain. He's already shown that he keeps his promises and he will keep his promise again. Now, we stand in a time of preparation and of waiting. And we are all, I hope, looking forward to having a really joyful time at Christmas. But in order for us to have a really joyful time this Christmas, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And all of it's very important. This year, more than ever, perhaps, it's important to really have a great time and prepare for a lot of rejoicing at Christmas. Let's not cancel Christmas. Are we okay with that? Are we all in agreement that we shouldn't cancel Christmas this year? I think <laughs> that um, there was a war on Thanksgiving uh, last week and the weeks leading up to that. Uh, get ready because you haven't seen anything yet. There is coming a war on Christmas because Christmas, you cannot escape that it's all about Christ. Uh, it's, it's not, and, and, they, and the, the wicked know it, and the devil knows it. He knows what it's about, and he's going to try to cancel it. So this is a year to not say, oh, uh, Christmas is too much fuss. Let's just do without it. No, this is the year to make a fuss. If there was ever a year to make a fuss, to do all that you're able. And that's one of the great benefits of following the calendar. Just as today is the Lord's Day, you got up today, I don't care if you felt like coming to church. I don't care if you felt like coming to worship and listening to God's word being read and singing and eating at his table. I don't care if you felt like that. 
Today's the day of the Lord. What do you do? Well, you're a Christian and you go be with God's people today. That's what you do because it's the day of the Lord. And when you get here, then you feel like it many times, don't you? You didn't feel like it when you rolled out of bed, but you got here and then you felt like it. That's why we have a calendar of festivities. That's why we have, maybe, maybe I don't really feel like celebrating and rejoicing in the resurrection of the Lord uh, in March or April. But you know what? It's Easter. It's time to do this. This is what we do. On December 25th, I don't care if you feel like it or not, I'm going to be rejoicing in the incarnation. And you will too. And you'll do it and you'll feel like it after you start. You see, that's the benefit. You, you do it anyway. And then, and then and then you're transformed and the world is transformed. That's why we don't ever let these things slip. That's why we don't ever think that they're not important. So this theme of preparation and this theme of making ready is one that I would like to carry with us throughout this Advent season over the next four Sundays and consider what preparations do you need to be making for the feast? How do you need to be preparing your life your heart, your family, your house to have a wonderful, joyful celebration. And I want to help you with that. Not by coming to your house and hanging your Christmas lights. I'm not doing that. I'm not baking any cookies. And I'm not going to buy your grandma a sweater. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. You do those things. But I want to help you prepare your heart for a great celebration, for a great feast. There are several spiritual distractions and obstructions that prevent real joy that we need to clean out. We have to clean house. In fact, that's one thing you need to do before you start decorating, right? You need to clean house. You need to get everything sorted out. You need to throw the old stuff away and get ready for the new stuff that's coming at Christmas. So the first thing we need to clean up as we prepare for the great celebration ahead of us, the first thing you need to sweep out of all the corners and get out of your heart and life, the one thing we're going to attack today is unresolved guilt. It's one thing we're going to deal with. Clean out unresolved guilt. And this is one of those subjects. There's some things that I speak about and I say, well, this is more for dads or this is more for moms or this is more for kids or maybe this is really helpful for somebody in business. This is one subject where I'm absolutely 100% certain that I'm speaking to every one of you. Because we all know and experience and feel guilt. We can all relate to guilt because all of us sin and all of us experience guilt. And we all need to know what to do about it because unresolved guilt will kill our joy. It will diminish our peace. Unresolved guilt will counteract every one of our attempts to celebrate and delight in the blessings of our Lord Jesus. Trying to make merry with a guilty conscience is like trying to look at the world through dirty glasses. It's like trying to listen to a symphony orchestra through earmuffs. It's like trying to taste a dessert after you burned your tongue on the hot coffee. It, it mutes guilt, deadens joy. And I don't want your joy to be muted. Not this year. Definitely not this year. I don't want your joy to be muted. I want your joy to be full. So what do you say? Let's clean house and let's confront this issue of guilt. I just read Psalm 38. By the way, that's Psalm 38, uh, if you're tracking. <laughs> Psalm 38. Where David prays and he sings about the significant physical and emotional and spiritual pain that unconfessed sin and undealt with guilt have brought him. In verse 2, he feels a deep, intense internal pain and pressure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is an oppression 
to the weight of guilt. In verse 3, he experiences physical illness. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Well, how does your sin affect your, affect your body? Well, we're created living spirits. We're living souls. Our bodies and our spirits are intertwined in such a way that a sick body drags down our spirits. And a polluted heart brings real physical pain. You read Psalm 32. He says, my bones ache because of my sin, because of my iniquities. So he feels physical pain. Verse 4, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. He's burdened physically. His wounds aren't healing. He cries all the time. Verse six, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. He, cry, he cries all the time. When it's quiet, when he's by himself, he cries. Uh, when he has a moment of peace, he, he, just, he just cries and he can't stop it. He can't stop crying. Verse seven, my loins are full of inflammation. It's, there, there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble. I am benumbed is the word, I think, in the New American Standard. And that's, that's a good translation. The word is to be cold or to be rigid. I am benumbed and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. I can't feel anything. Nothing tastes good. Nothing sounds good. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. My work doesn't bring pleasure. Nothing brings me comfort. And, and I, I just can't feel anything. He talks about the turmoil of his heart. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. My heart is inwardly agitated. My heart flips over and over, and I carry this weight of anxiety, this pressure in my chest I don't know what to do with. He keeps sighing and exhaling. Verse 9, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. I just, oh, oh. Oh, all the time. He's sighing and exhaling. He has heart palpitations. Verse 10, my heart pants. My strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. His heart is racing and he has sad eyes. You ever see any, somebody with sad eyes? Or have you ever had sad eyes? That's what he has. He's, he's, he, he looks down. Verse, verse 11, he's lonely. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. He's all by himself, and he's fearful, and he's uh, paranoid. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction, and I plan deception all the, they plan deception all the day long. Everybody's against me. Everybody hates me. Everybody thinks that I'm a loser. Now, what do you make of that? What do you, as you listen to that, if David is your friend, and you have coffee with him, and he opens up to you and says, I got to tell you, I am living under this great weight of pressure, so much that, that I feel physical pain. I am so oppressed. I, I can't stop crying at odd times of the day. I've lost all feeling. I'm, I'm numb, and I'm agitated, and I'm anxious, and my, my heart is racing, and I'm, I'm lonely, and I think everybody is against me. What would you say to David? What do you, what do you, think, what do you think is wrong with him? If, if you had to diagnose him, what would you say? David, you are, you say it. What do you think? David, you are depressed. David, you are depressed. And he asked him, why do you feel this way, David? Well, he says, I, I just, I think God is against me. I feel like a horrible person. In fact, that's what he says in verse one. Oh, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. God is against me. 
Now, you might be inclined to say, no, David, God isn't against you. You're not a horrible person. He said, I just feel like a horrible person. No, no, David, you're not a horrible person. You, you intend by saying those things to encourage him and make him feel better, but you need to consider the possibility that God is against him. Maybe your friend has sinned grievously against God and he has not resolved his guilt. And there is a reason that he is weighed down. All of these physical and emotional and social pressures are God's grace to him to call him to repentance. Can we say that? Can we say God is against me? Well, God is indeed against you when you're in rebellion against him. In Exodus 4.23, God empowers Moses with a message to speak to Pharaoh and to free his people from slavery in Egypt. In the very next verse, God calls him and empowers him in 4.23. In 4.24, Exodus 4.24, God seeks to kill Moses because he didn't give his son the sign of the covenant. God was against him. God was opposed to Moses in his rebellion. God loved Moses. He called him. He was going to use him to deliver his people. But when Moses rebelled, God was against Moses. God opposed him. Moses had to repent and obey. It's not loving to tell people everything's okay when everything's not okay. It's not okay. And it's not loving to say everything's going to be fine. And, and I, I think you're okay when you're maybe not. Now, what if David went to the ordinary, average, non-Christian physician and said all of these things? What if he said, all the pleasure has gone out of my life, I can't feel anything, I'm burdened with guilt, I feel like I deserve punishment, I feel all alone, what would your average non-Christian physician say? A doctor who does not have a vocabulary of sin, forgiveness, redemption, what would they say? They'd come to the same conclusion you just did. They would say, David, you're depressed. And they would very likely prescribe him a medication without taking any tests, without even drawing any blood to determine if there's something physically wrong with him that requires a medication. He has a deep spiritual need. He's crying out in despair. His problems are at least as, as much theological and spiritual as they are physical. And he has all these problems that a pill is not going to resolve. I want you to hear me clearly that there are real biological needs that can be helped with medication. I'm going to repeat that so you hear me clearly. There are real biological needs that can be helped with medication. I'm going to say something else. Guilt is not the only source or cause of depression. Guilt is not the only source or cause of depression. However, if a man comes asking these things and saying these things, is it not at least worth looking into the fact that he may have unresolved guilt in his life? That there may be problems that, that a prescription is not going to address. Our bodies and our minds are tremendously complex, and I have zero expertise in the fields of biology or medicine, and I trust the needs of the outer man to good physicians. My focus is on the inner man, and when somebody reports that they're experiencing these things, it indicates a strong possibility, at least it's worth looking into, that this person has unresolved sin and guilt in their life, and a prescription is at best a shallow treatment for a deep problem. If all you do is address the outer man without ever getting to the heart, you're never going to be truly healed or liberated. What David needs here can't be dispensed at Walgreens or 
it can't be dispensed at the ABC store either. Nor can he self-medicate on WebMD and find his answers there. Uh, we're, we're a nation who self-medicates and pursues every avenue of, of healing and peace apart from confessing our sins and dealing with our heart before God and, and our rebellion before God. The psalm teaches us that unresolved guilt carries with it a considerable cost. Lost time, lost opportunity, lost guilt, lost friendship, all kinds of productivity is lost in unresolved guilt. Unresolved guilt is exceedingly expensive. And if this psalm even partly describes you, then you're not ready for the great feast to come and you have some house cleaning to do. So what is David's answer for his deep distress? Verse 18, for I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. I'm going to confess it. I declare my iniquity. I'm going to sorrow over my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Yahweh. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to realize that these people who are in my life, who are bringing me pain and anguish and sorrow, have been put there by God, and all of these pains are part of his love for me and bringing me back to him, and I'm going to cry out to him for forgiveness and salvation. I am going to cry out to the Lord for deliverance and help. That's the remedy for a burdened conscience. So whatever you may be burdened with right now, whatever comes to mind as you, as you think through this, whatever you feel guilty over, those, those loose ends that keep you continually in anguish and heartache, God's word tells us exactly how to address it and how to have a clear conscience before God and man. The first remedy for guilt is to admit to being a sinner. In 1 John chapter 1, you can quote this to me, but I'm going to read it again. We have this great affirmation and this great reminder in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. On the one hand, that sounds like the easiest thing to do. It sounds like the easiest thing in the world to do is just to confess our sin. But truly, this is the most difficult thing, the most difficult step for someone deeply wrapped up in and heavily burdened by long-standing untreated guilt problems. Because we train ourselves to do everything but admit to being a sinner. We are well-practiced in deflecting and excusing and blaming our sin on other people. We're masters at it because our parents, Adam and Eve, were masters at this. When they sinned, they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. They tried to hide from God. And then they started blaming others, uh, everyone beside themselves. Adam says, it's that woman. Uh, uh, Eve says, it's that, it's that snake. They covered, they hid, they blamed. Every one of us has an inner lawyer that we keep on retainer that rises to our defense when we're confronted in our sin. And this lawyer is trying to cover for us and deflect and point out where everyone else is wrong and what everybody else is doing to get the heat off of us, and it doesn't work. Now, you and I don't sow fig leaves. 
when it's revealed to us that we have offended or sinned in some way, but we do something very similar. Instead of admitting our guilt, instead of confessing our sin, we excuse our sin, we make accusations against the person bringing to us our sin or revealing our sin, and we threaten. We excuse, we accuse, and we threaten. I want to look at each one of those very quickly. We accuse. I'm sorry, we excuse, we accuse, we threaten. First of all, we excuse. There's always some extenuating circumstance. There's always some reasonable explanation for our behavior. There's always some corner that we've been backed into. And the only way out was for us to sin. We blame our parents, our circumstances, our finances, our spouses, our kids, our bosses, our friends, our bad luck. All of these things have worked in concert together to make us a really pitiful victim. You see, don't you feel sorry for me? And surely you can understand why I did what I did. We lay out this very detailed, reasonable justification. And you see, you would do the very same thing if you were in my position. In fact, I think I did better than what you would do. Uh, but but you, you would do the same thing. What was I supposed to do? Don't you understand me? I had no choice but to do what I did. Remember 1 Corinthians 10 and keep this in your minds and in your heart. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What does that mean? God never, 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 never puts you in a position where the only way out is to sin. You hear me? Did you catch that? I need to hear this too, and you do as well. God never paints you in a corner, and the only way out is to sin. Sin never puts you in checkmate. There's always a way of escape. The way out may be painful. It may require sacrifice and humility. It may require you to crucify something. It may require you to amputate something that you really enjoy. But there's always a way out. To put it a different way, there is no situation in life where it is impossible for you to please God. God will never put you in a position where it is impossible for you to please him and to not sin. There is no excuse for sin, but we do that. We excuse. We we really work hard to justify our sin rather than confess it. The second thing we do is we accuse. We point fingers. We blame shift. Get the spotlight off of me. Put the spotlight on you. A husband may say to his wife, oh, you're you're mad at me. You caught me because I said I was coming home and I stopped off at the bar and I, I, uh, I, I, I told you, well, I had to work late. You caught me. But, but what about that time you spent so much money at Target and you didn't tell me you spent as much? Or your kid threw a rock at my car. Oh yeah? Well, your kid makes ugly faces at grandma and he slept through worship. Well, let's deal with one thing at a time. I'll deal what I, with what I'm responsible for. I want to talk about it. In fact, I welcome it, but let's focus on one thing at a time. When we throw accusations around, we're not really looking for answers. We're not really looking for resolutions. We're just trying to turn up the noise so that the heat is off of us. If I'm caught in sin, my 
my response is, well, what about that guy? Well, what about what he did? Well, what about them? What about this other thing? What about this crazy situation? And the conclusion is to create so much noise that the answer is supposed to be, well, who are you supposed to believe and what are you supposed to do in this crazy old world? I mean, everything's just crazy. Look at all this crazy stuff. Instead of really getting down to business and dealing with your own sin, how about instead of asking what everybody else is doing, we first deal with our own sin? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let's deal with the speck. We'll get to the speck. But right now, we're working on the plank. Right now, we're working on the redwood tree that's growing out of your forehead. That's what we're dealing with right now. We'll get to the speck. We excuse, we accuse, and then we threaten. We go on the attack when we feel uh, that we're put on the defensive. We go back and we go on the attack like Cain. Right? Cain didn't deal with his terrible attitude. He killed his brother. That's how he tried to deal with his guilt. So we, the same way, we overreact. We threaten harm. If error or sin becomes evident, fine, you'll never see me again, or I quit, good luck doing this without me, or you just wait, your turn is coming. That's not dealing with the sin. It's just creating another distraction, just a self-centered attempt to do anything but deal with the sin. When faithful Christians are confronted with their sin, they confess their sin. I did it. You're right. I was wrong. I am guilty. I sinned against you, and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you for pointing out my error. I sinned. Those are the most liberating words you can say. It's almost impossible to describe the weight that is lifted off your shoulders when you admit that you're a sinner. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. There's lightness and there's joy and there's peace when you confess your sins. That's why we confess our sins together every week in worship. Every time we worship, we come in, we praise the Lord, and then we hit our knees. Why? Because you need to practice this and I need to practice this. We need to get good at this. We need to get good at confessing our sins. We do this on Sunday so that when we sin on Monday, we remember what to do. In fact, keep this bulletin in your Bible or in your calendar or on your refrigerator because you're going to need this prayer again. You're going to need it on Monday. You're going to need it on Tuesday. You're going to need it on Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning and Wednesday again about 10 o'clock. You're going to need this prayer again. You need practice in this. Take this prayer and keep it with you because we need to confess our sins. That's the first thing. Number one, admit that you're a sinner. Number two, confess your sins to God. This is, this is a different step. I'm a sinner, now what? Well, confess your sin. To confess your sin to God means to define it the way that God defines your sin. It means to align your perspective on your behavior with God's perspective on your behavior. How does God view sin? How does he? Sin is not a little, uh-oh, Sin is not a little, whoopsie. It's not, you know, uh, an, oh, my bad. You know, I, oh, that's not what sin is. Sin is not something to trifle with. We always joke about saying, you know, Las Vegas is sin city and restaurants advertise desserts as, you know, this sinfully decadent chocolate, as if, as if, as if these are jokes. 
We joke about sin. No, confessing sin is saying about my sin what God says about my sin. Every sin is a rebellious act of cosmic proportions against an infinitely just and holy God. Sin is treason against a perfectly righteous sovereign king. Sin is an act of supreme ingratitude toward our benevolent creator. Every sin is a sin for which Christ died. Every one of them. It is a sin which sent Jesus to the cross and for which he paid for his own blood. What are we doing laughing about sin? What are we doing treating it like a whoops, my bad, Uh uh-oh, no. It's no laughing matter. It's no light matter. So confess your sin in a way that expresses your hatred for sin the way God hates your sin. Paul says in Romans 12, abhor what is evil. Grow in your disgust for your own sin. Be righteously and indignantly ashamed of your sin. Ask God to help you to hate this habit, this thought pattern, this wicked motive that is killing you, that is isolating you, that is robbing you of joy and rest and health and peace, this thing that is withholding you and and, and withholding from you a full abundance of life in the covenant. Hate it so you can put it away from you. I don't want to excuse it. I don't want to accuse anybody else. I don't want to weaponize it. I want it gone. I want it gone. And so in 1 John 1, 9, we see if we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice he doesn't say if we sin, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da, Because that's a foregone conclusion. We're going to sin. He says, if we confess, the reasonable assumption is that we're, we're going to sin and we need to confess it. So that's the second thing. First of all, admit you're a sinner. Secondly, confess your sin to God. Thirdly, confess to the people your sin has injured or offended and seek to make restitution. Confess your sin to the people you have injured or offended and seek to make restitution. One of the reasons that we become overwhelmed with guilt is that we have defrauded other people and that, that, that sin has damaged our relationship with them. We have done real harm to them. And the pain that we cause other people seems irreparable. And just the thought of the damage we've done to relationships and other people brings us deep sorrow and depression. God would have us make it right His law is full of ordinances of restitution. If you either by negligence or deliberate action, if you defraud your neighbor of what is his, you pay him back. You pay him back what you owed him, plus extra to put him in a better spot. If you steal an ox, you pay back five. If you steal a sheep, you pay back four. That's the law of restitution. In in Luke 19, when, when Jesus saves Zacchaeus, the the rich tax collector. Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. If I've stolen $100 from somebody, I'm going to pay him $400. If I've stolen $1,000, I'll pay him $4,000. And Jesus does not say, oh, oh, Zacchaeus, I, 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 I get what you're saying, but Zacchaeus, that's not necessary. 
your heart's in the right place and everybody's just going to be so excited when they hear that you're in the kingdom. I'm just sure everybody's going to understand. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy to know that you're, you're one of my disciples. Now that's just really nice. No, is that what Jesus doesn't say that Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. Jesus says today salvation has come to this house. The desire to make restitution was evidence of his salvation. It was evidence of a changed heart and a transformed life. Often people will come to you to confess sin or to correct a wrong, and and we're liable to minimize the problem. And and someone will come to us and say, I'm so sorry, and we'll say, oh, don't think anything of it. Oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, even if it is a big deal. We say, especially if you're raised in the South or the Midwest, and you're just super polite, and you don't want to ever be awkward, and you don't ever, ever, ever put anybody in a tough situation. You just say, oh, it's not a big deal. We deflect, and we try to go on. But what would Jesus have us do? If someone comes to you confessing their sin and asking for your forgiveness, you know what the best thing you can do is? Forgive them. Say, yes, I forgive you, and thank you for coming to me even if they can't quite articulate it, if they're not using the right words, but they're trying to make peace, make peace and forgive them. The most liberating words that you can say are, I have sinned, please forgive me. The most liberating words that you can hear are, I forgive you. So say that, make it a habit to say that to your kids, to your spouse. And on the other side, if you have defrauded someone, if you have taken advantage of someone, or if you've damaged something that you have failed to make right, no matter how long it has been, no matter how big or small the expense, seek to make it right and put them in a better position than what you left them. Do everything you can right now. And there are some people you can't get a hold of, and there are some people it's been so long that... You don't even know if they remember you. Make the effort. Make the effort. Do everything that's within your power so your conscience will be clear. Admit that you're a sinner. Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to people you have injured or offended and seek to make restitution. If you have unresolved guilt in your heart and in your life, that's what I just told you. This is the only path to a clear conscience. Don't accept any shortcuts. Don't accept any counterfeits. There are three. I'm going to close with these three counterfeits to uh, a confession of sin and restitution. Um, one counterfeit to, your, to, to resolving your guilt is to deny that you're even guilty to begin with. You may be tempted to think, well, the only reason I feel bad, the only reason I feel guilty is because I'm being held to some antiquated, unreasonable standard. There's some misinterpretation of the Bible, and I'm just being burdened by expectations that nobody in this day should be held to. Come on, it's, it's 2020. That's the year. We, 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 don't, we don't follow this, this old dusty book anymore. I mean, there's some, some helpful things in there, I'm sure. And if it helps you out, if it makes you feel better, that's fine. But don't hold me to this standard. And the only reason I'm feeling bad is because you're making me feel bad and you're hanging this over my head. Well, you see, um, at root, that's a denial of God and his standards. That's a denial of God and his word. And that's an attempt to establish your own standard that's over and above and better than the Bible in your mind. And that lie is not going to save you. That lie is not going to clean your conscience. That lie is not going to deliver you. What happens then, now you've erected your own 
standard. What happens when you fail to keep that? Because you're bound to. You're bound to disappoint yourself. What are you going to do now, Charlie? Who's going to save you then? You're back where you started. You're miserable and without remedy because now you've made this false gospel. You can't even keep that. You can't even follow that. No, don't deny that you're really guilty. Don't listen to the lies. Admit and confess your sin. Another counterfeit is to try to cover up your guilt by trying to be a better person. I feel bad. I feel guilty. Uh, I know God is against me. I know I've offended him. The way I'm going to deal with this is I'm going to be a better person. Come New Year's Day, I'm going to do all kinds of things differently. Um, I'm, I'm going to be a better person. And you buy into the falsehood that doing good things makes you a better person. Do you believe that? Do you believe doing good things makes you a good person? Is that, is that what you believe? Because that's a false gospel. That is absolutely incorrect. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only goodness we can ever have is the righteousness that is in Christ. And his righteousness is only ours insofar as we're in union with him. You don't become good by doing good things. You can never do enough good things on your own and in your own power to be good. Try to be a better person and you're going to continue failing. And you're going to continue to heap up your guilt, and that is not going to bring you anything but more sorrow. Confess your sins and rest in the righteousness and forgiveness of Christ alone. That's all there is. There's nothing else. Don't accept this counterfeit that you think, well, I'll just cover this up by doing a lot of good stuff. It doesn't work. A third false remedy is convince yourself that you're okay by comparing yourself to other people. As long as there's somebody else out there who's acting worse than I am, I must be okay. I mean, I lose my temper every once in a while, but I don't beat my kids. I steal a little bit here and there from my company, but I'm not like one of those white collar criminals that have stolen millions, right? I'm not as bad as they are. God does not weigh you out and compare you to other people. God does not grade on a curve. You are weighed by his perfect law and bad news you've broken it. You have failed to keep his law. Oh, good news. Jesus has kept his law and you are in him and you have forgiveness. So we don't compare ourselves to other sinners. We compare ourselves to Christ and we see how far we are from his righteousness and we pray for his grace to obey and to keep his covenant. Block out all of these distractions. People of God, clear your mind of all of these counterfeits. Put them away. Repudiate them. Don't accept them. And you will have peace. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to be cleansed. I do not want to go into the season of festivity and rejoicing I do not want to go into this next month feeling dirty and fake and hiding behind superficial joy. And I know you don't want to either. You don't want to go through this feeling dirty and fake. Confess your sins to God and clean your house of all unresolved guilt before God and all unresolved guilt before man and rejoice in the true hope and the promises of the gospel. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises and the hope of forgiveness in Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice for us and we rejoice in it. So, Father, continually bring to our mind by your Holy Spirit the things we need to confess and give us the ability and the strength by your Spirit to admit our sins, to confess them, and to make restitution with others wherever we can. 
Father, bless us in this and give us your true joy. In Jesus' name, amen.